0: can you believe that we have reached our final session in our series on John's Gospel, Jesus at the Centre? We started it sometime last year, I've lost count now, but we have finally reached chapter 21. It's been not so jovial. I don't know if you've ever watched a film and been left with loads of questions. What happened next? How did it all pan out? Did so-and-so get together? What was the end of the story? You know, particularly for those films that are are based on real-life events. You know, I I end up finding myself having to go onto Wikipedia after I've seen one of those sort of films, and and what what happened to so-and-so, and how did it all pan out? And so I love it when certain films, you know when the end credits start rolling, and you get little updates, so-and-so went on to become. Uh, One of those films Claire and I saw the other day was Selma. I don't know if you've ever seen it yet. It's highly, highly recommended, beautifully acted. It's about the story of Martin Luther King and his, his campaign to secure equal voting rights. He did this epic march from Selma to Montgomery, beautifully acted. And uh, what was lovely was, at the end, it gave updates of, of what happened to these individuals. Obviously, sadly, tragically, we know what happened to Martin Luther King, assassinated just a, a few years later. But it was wonderful to hear what happened to some of those incredibly brave men and women who put their, their life on the line. Wonderful to hear stories of how they reached positions of prominence and influence, And recognition that they deserved. Why am I mentioning all that? Well, the last chapter of John, chapter 21, in many ways feels a little bit like an epilogue, like the update. Here's how it panned out. As we've seen over these last few months, for 20 chapters, John has expertly laid out the evidence that Jesus was and is who he said he was, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the great I Am. He made a wonderful case through these 20 chapters, picking, hand-picking just seven miracles, signs to point to the truth of who Jesus is. We saw the seven I am sayings of Jesus. Again, John just very carefully hand-selecting. This is who Jesus is. It's wonderful, isn't it? He's the bread that satisfies. He's the, the light we can follow. He's the door to enter, the shepherd who guides us. He's the resurrection and the life, the way of salvation and the vine in which We need to abide. Clear, clear picture of who Jesus is. And John then spends a lot of time going over the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus, spending time looking at the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ. He died. He was buried. Praise God, he rose again. And then he kind of rounds it all off in chapter 20 saying, this is why I have written my gospel account. Here's my story that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's almost as if he's saying it's over to you now. What's your verdict going to be? The end music creeps in, the credits start rolling, except, thankfully, He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there. As I said, if he did, we'd probably have quite a few unanswered questions. Namely, what happened to Peter? Last we heard, he'd blown it, denied Jesus three times. Was it game over for him? For that matter, what what happened to the other disciples? Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father. What happened to them? Did they just go back to their, their day job, go back to their fishing and tax collecting? How did it all pan out? Well, thankfully, we have chapter 21 to help us. And, and as I was looking at chapter 21 this week, I just realised there is so much in this chapter. We probably could have done about three sermons on this. And so I was praying, I was just saying, God, what, what points do you want us to look at this morning? And I felt God just just give me three vital keys from this chapter on how we continue to live with Jesus at the very centre of our lives. We called our series that, Jesus at the Centre. Now John is finally wrapping up his gospel account. How do we continue to live with Jesus at the centre? So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to chapter 21 and uh, we'll get stuck in. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read out sections as we go. But first of all, we see that the disciples have indeed ended up back in Galilee fishing. It's kind of almost like full circle, full circle. What were they doing there? Well, actually, they were being obedient to Jesus. Jesus, when he rose again on that Easter Sunday, we're told in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, I'm going to go to Galilee. Meet me there, and so they were in Galilee. But fishing—maybe they just something to pass the time. Maybe it was just that—that that was the thing they felt comfortable doing. Fish, except they weren't being very successful. Let's take it up from verse four. Just as day was breaking, they'd been fishing all night. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. We we, we know that several times people didn't recognize the risen Jesus with his new resurrected body. Maybe he just looked a bit different. Maybe it was still dark. I don't know. They didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said, cast the net out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved—we know that's John—therefore said to Peter, "'It's the Lord!' When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped down for work, and threw himself into the sea." Don't you just love Peter? He's not the most practical guy, but he's passionate. The others were a little bit more practical— They came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish already laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus basically invites them for breakfast. Wonderful. What's going on here? Well, as I said, Galilee was the place where it all kicked off for many of the disciples. It was the place where Jesus first called Peter, James, and John to leave their nets and follow him to become fishers of men. And although, as we'll see, this passage goes on to focus primarily on Peter, I think there's, it's very much a, a recommissioning for all the disciples who were there. We're told that seven of the disciples were there. You know, a, an awful lot had happened since the time that Jesus first called them. They, they had seen some incredible highs, some amazing miracles. They'd also experienced some devastating lows. Their saviour, the one they left everything for, being crucified. Huge, huge highs, huge lows. They'd had some wobbles. They were probably full of questions and doubts. You know, Jesus, you're going to the Father. What's to become of us? And I think they needed reminding again of what Jesus had told them back in John 14, that he wasn't going to leave them as orphans, that he was still going to provide for them, that they could still rely on him, ultimately through his Holy Spirit who was in a short while going to come at Pentecost they weren't going to be left high and dry they needed reassurance that this calling had absolutely nothing to do with their own giftings or ability or qualification but everything to do with the one who had called them 1 Thessalonians 5:24 says he who calls you is faithful he will enable you And I just felt God wanted to remind us in fact he was reminding us in our worship again that we can and should be confident in our calling because he who calls you is faithful Love that picture of that boat this morning. He's with you. You can be confident, not in your own ability, but the fact that God is with you and he'll never leave you. Even in times of transition like this, even in times of uncertainty, we can be confident because the God who calls also provides. That's what Jesus was demonstrating here. The God who calls also equips you. And empowers you. And so Jesus pretty much starts off by repeating. So you'll know this is a very similar miracle to the one that he did recorded back in Luke 5 when he first called them. Remember how I provided for you miraculously? He he repeats the same miracle. The disciples once again had been fishing all night, caught nothing. And yet one instruction from Jesus, everything changes. They get this huge catch. Notice, you know, Jesus calls them children. In the NIV, it's translated friends. I don't know if that's what it's translated in, in your version, but actually the Greek here means children in training, school children. Don't forget, these are burly, experienced fishermen. Children, it wasn't derogatory. It's just reminding them, you still need to rely on me. I'm still the master. But it's also a term of of, of endearment. It's a term of, of affection. Children, you know, twice now they've had to humble themselves and rely on Jesus to catch anything. And yet when they trusted, when they obeyed, they saw this amazing catch, amazing fruit. There is only one way to live the Christian life, and that is to rely totally on Jesus, to trust him completely, to obey him, to rely on his power, on his provision. It's only one way. So we were reminded the other week when we looked at John 15, Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do very little? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be confident not in our own abilities and our own strengths, but confident simply in the fact that the God who calls us calls us according to his purposes. And he will provide everything we need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I love the way 2 Corinthians 3 verses 4 to 6 is, is, uh, is written in the New Living Translation. It says this, We are confident because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of this new covenant. If you're a Christian here this morning, know that you are called by God. And if you are called by God, then it's he who has already qualified you. It's interesting, uh, Mike, when he was talking about the prayer, he said, you know, don't feel like you have to be qualified to come. We're all unqualified, but it's Jesus who qualifies you. You're already... Isn't that freeing? (laughs) I find that really freeing. It's he who qualifies us. And it's, it's something we see right the way through the Bible, isn't it? Time and time again, God calls the very unlikely, the unskilled, the undeserving, through which he accomplishes his purposes through which he accomplishes amazing things. I mean, you just start flicking through the Bible. People like Jacob, a deceiver. People like Moses, a murderer. People like Gideon, a coward, hiding in the winepress. People like Peter, who denied Jesus after saying, I'll lay my life down for you. People like Paul, persecutor of the church. People like me. People like you, we can be confident that those God has called, he will also provide. Yet, particularly for Peter, there was something else going on here. There was doubt as to whether this calling on his life even still applied. He'd blown it after all, hadn't he? Denied Jesus three times. And, and imagine how he felt now after John says, it's the Lord. Oh, lump in my throat. There he is sitting around a charcoal fire. What's so significant about a charcoal fire? Well, John mentions this type of fire only two times. One time in this account. And one time it's the same fire that Peter stood around when he denied Jesus. It's just another painful reminder. This is the same fire, charcoal fire, not a wood fire, that I stood around when I denied you. Another painful reminder of his denial. Jesus, do you even still want me? Do you even want me? And then we get this wonderful passage where Jesus recommissions Peter. We'll read it from verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Commentators go to town about what he meant by these. It's fairly ambiguous. Some people say, did he mean these as in your fishing nets? Do you love me more than your, your, your past? Some people think, well, do you love me more than you love the disciples? Actually, I, I believe it's, it's probably Jesus saying, Do you love me more than these disciples love me? Because that's kind of what Peter boasted just before he denied Jesus. Jesus, you know, these guys might leave you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And of course, he denied Jesus. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep three times for each denial jesus gives peter the opportunity to be reconciled you know the wonderful truth is that god doesn't just call the unqualified he also calls the disqualified people who have discounted themselves through past mistakes discounted themselves because they think, I I just don't live up to the mark. Jesus wants you to know, if that's you this morning, that you can be confident in his forgiveness. You can be confident in his provision. You can be confident in his forgiveness. You know, I I remember, as I was reading this, I was reminded of when I was back in sick form at school, and uh, a thing was going around at the time that I happened to look like an actor in The Bill. Everyone remember The Bill? It's a police drama. Anyway, I, didn't, I couldn't see it myself. But anyway, every time I walked anywhere, it was like, hey, it's the kid from The Bill. And it was all very lighthearted. It was fine. The thing was, this character from The Bill was a born-again Christian. And that was his character he was portraying. Born-again Christian in the tough environment of the Met. And one day I walked into a packed sixth form common room to the usual chance of, hey, it's the kid from the bill. And then one, one moment this, this guy turned to me and said, hey, you're not a crazy born again Christian too, are you? All eyes suddenly turned on me and it went really quiet. And I crumbled and I, I just, I, I kind of just laughed it off. I was like, that would be weird, wouldn't it? And I, I just crawled away. I felt devastated. I thought, I can't even stand up and profess Jesus as my Lord in the lightest sort of pressured environment. It wasn't, it wasn't heavy. They were just having a laugh. And I, I, all I could think about was when Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. I was like, that's it. Blown it. Even in amongst my friends, I couldn't stand up and say, yes, I'm a crazy born-again Christian. (laughs) But you know what? Praise God, our past doesn't disqualify us. Our past does not disqualify us. We can have confidence in his forgiveness and his complete desire to restore us. You know, Jesus doesn't rub salt in our wounds. Let's make them just suffer a little bit more so they learn their lesson. No, no, he is swift to restore, to restore us fully. That's what we see here with Peter. It's almost like he takes him right back to the beginning, right back to the beginning of his calling. In fact, did you notice he doesn't call him Peter? He says, Simon, Simon, the impetuous, not Peter the rock. That must have hurt. So like, hold on. I-, I thought I was now Peter the rock. It's almost like Jesus was saying, I'm giving you another chance to be that rock through which I will establish my church. I love you. I want you. You know, in the same way you publicly denied me, I want to publicly recommission you. Aren't you glad? Our God is a God of second chances, countless second chances. Song we sing, isn't it? Countless second chances. Thing I've found is that God is never surprised by our failures. You know, he, he predicted Peter's denial. After all, didn't He? He's not surprised when we let Him down. I, I retweeted a tweet. I should have looked up who actually tweeted it originally. But anyway, I loved it. It said this, You can never disappoint the Lord. He wasn't under any illusions about you when he called you. <laughs> I love that. Yet he still loves you. God isn't under any illusions. He still loves us. He still chooses us. He still calls us through which he will accomplish His desires and His plans. You see, our calling is never based on our performance. It's never based on our performance. If it were, we'd been disqualified from the very beginning. Praise God, it's Jesus who qualifies you. Don't let the past take you out of the game. Don't don't let the past disqualify you. Because as we see right the way through the Bible, you're exactly the sort of person that Jesus can use. However unqualified you feel, you can be confident of God's equipping, God's enabling, God's provision. However disqualified you feel, you can be confident in his forgiveness and in his willingness to restore you. What we also see in this passage, particularly this recommissioning of Peter, is that Jesus isn't just interested in the catch. He's not just interested in reaching people with the gospel. He's also interested in how we look after those who have responded to the gospel, those who have been saved. We see in this passage that we're not just called to fish, we're also called to shepherd as well. And we see here... That this shepherding has to be rooted in a love for Jesus. That's the second key. Living Christ centered lives, we need to be compelled by love. Compelled by love. Last week, Rob spoke a lot on how love needs to be at the very center of our unity. As a witness to the world, it's at the very center of our mission. But this love has to be rooted first in a love for Jesus. We, we can't love people unless we truly love Jesus. Why? Because it's, we love with his love. We reach out with his compassion and with his grace. But it's also true, we cannot truly love Jesus without also loving his church, without loving one another, his sheep. You know, Jesus completely identifies Himself with his church, doesn't he? We, we see that with Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears and says, Paul, well, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church? Jesus totally identifies himself with his church, with you and me. And the outworking of our love for Jesus is loving one another, is looking out for one another, caring for one another. Paul got this. You know, number of times in Paul's letters, he says it's the love of God that compels me. I can't help it. It's out of my love for God. I'm compelled to shepherd these churches, to, 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 to keep preaching the gospel. It's love for God that compels me. You see, for Peter, he talked an awful lot about loving Jesus, boasted about it. But actually, We hadn't seen a lot of action. When the rubber hit the road, that love didn't manifest itself in action. And it's interesting because, again, commentators spend a lot of time talking about the different words for love that's used in this passage. There's there's four Greek words for love and two are used in this passage. There's agape, which is the the selfless, sacrificial love. That's the word Jesus used when he says, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me with a, a sacrificial, selfless love that's demonstrated in action? And Peter replies saying, yes, Lord, I love you using phileo, which is an affection, more of a feeling, a brotherly love. And yes, you could probably read too much into this. The Bible sort of switches these words around. But I, I think it's interesting to see that what Jesus is calling Peter to is a deeper love that shows itself in action. Do you love me? Then show it by taking care of my sheep. Again, a lot's been written about the different words he uses for sheep and lambs and stuff. And I just think it's, 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 it, he's saying, take care of everyone. The young ones, the new Christians, make sure you nurture them and feed them, look after them. But also the more mature ones, the lambs, the, the, the sheep themselves. The ones who've been Christians a while, make sure you look after them as well. Right across the spectrum. It's interesting, actually, we didn't read it, but... Their catch of fish, there was a very specific number given. It said they caught 153 fish. I don't know who counted them all. 153, what's so significant about that number? Again, commentators go to town on it. I think probably the most helpful one is at the time, they thought there were 153 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And so it was almost symbolic that actually they're to catch every single type of person, that the gospel is for everyone, everyone. And once you've caught them, you look after them, you take care of them, you feed them. Love in action. See, while God does call specific individuals to be shepherds of churches and overseers of churches and lead churches, actually we all have a responsibility to look after and love one another. In the same way that we all have a responsibility to be fishers of men and women, we all have a responsibility to throw the nets out, to share our faith. We also have a responsibility to care for the flock, to disciple one another. Jesus in just a few days in Matthew 28 will go on and say, you know, he doesn't commission them to say, go and make converts, does he? He says, go and make disciples, people who are nurtured, people who are helped to follow their calling, to see fruit themselves. But we're compelled by love, not by guilt, not by duty, we're not have-to Christians, We get to, Christians, we get to serve God because we love him. And this agape love, this sacrificial love calls for action. It may even call for the ultimate sacrifice as we see with Peter. As we read on in this passage, shockingly, Jesus goes on to tell Peter how he's going to die what sort of strategy is that? I recommission you. Come and follow me. By the way, this is how you're going to die. Let's read it. Verse 18. He says, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. <laughs> you just think, how would you feel about that? Great, Jesus has welcomed me back. He's recommissioned me. By the way, you're going to be crucified. That's what stretching out your arms means. Come and follow me. It's it's not the best recruiting strategy, isn't it? How would you feel? I'd probably run a mile. (laughs) Personally, I'm glad God doesn't reveal the whole picture to us. I think if he did, as I said, I'd, I'd probably run a mile. But you know what? I think this speaks volumes about how much Peter would grow. You see, at Jesus' crucifixion, he crumbled, didn't he? He got scared. He ran. I don't know this man. And yet, what Jesus is saying here is that his very own crucifixion, when really it is his neck on the line, he will stand firm As Jesus says, he will glorify God to the end. Isn't that amazing? That confidence. You know, Jesus is saying, look, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. When John was writing this in AD 90, as we said when we first started this series, actually, Peter had already been crucified. He was crucified in AD 63, What Jesus prophesied around AD 33 came true in AD 63. And in fact, historians say that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his saviour. It's amazing, isn't it? Peter was compelled by love, even sacrificial love, to the very end, whatever the cost, what a turnaround. What a turnaround. You know, although it may have seemed hard for Jesus to have shared that, as I said, I, I think Jesus wanted him to know that he came good at the end. He crumbled in the past, but listen, you will stand firm when it really matters. You will stand firm when it really counts. We can be confident in our calling. We need to be compelled by love. But finally, and very briefly, there's one more key here that's perhaps, for me at least, one of the hardest, and that is to be content in God, to be content in that calling. See, as Jesus is sharing with Peter how his life is going to pan out, Peter looks back and sees John following, and he says to Jesus, what about him? What's going to happen to him? In verse 22, Jesus says to him, again, quite shockingly, really, if it's my will that he stays alive until I return, what's it to you? What's it to you? You follow me. It's a hard lesson, isn't it? In fact, this is what caused a rumor to be spread that John wasn't going to die. And part of the reason I think why John wrote this in this end section was to quash that rumour, saying, no, no, Jesus was just using it as an illustration as to what's it to you. Even if John doesn't die, you follow me. And although as Christians, each one of us have a similar calling to to go and make disciples, to, to follow Jesus, the outworking of that differs massively from one person to another and we need to be content with that we need to be content and not tempted to compare our path with someone else's you know comparison is a killer it's a killer it robs us of our joy and and Jesus in a very pretty blunt way just stamps, stamps that right out Peter it's not for you to worry about what others are doing or how others are doing. You be faithful to what you've been called to do and to be. So it's an important lesson for us. It's a hard lesson. I find it so easy to compare myself. How am I doing? How's that church doing? How's this church doing? It's dangerous. You know, your path is different from my path. It's different from the path of the person sitting next to you. For some, that might mean great suffering. We know John's brother, James, died by the sword in AD 44. A few years later, Peter would be crucified. But John, he lives into his late 90s, dies of old age. That's not fair, is it? doesn't seem fair. Jesus' response, what is it to you? You know, Peter, to be honest, might have just been asking out of, out of concern. You know, Jesus, you've just told me that I'm going to be crucified. What happens to John? Is he going to be all right? And yet, Jesus doesn't want us to, to even start comparing ourselves. Because when we do, disappointment can quickly set in, insecurity can quickly set in. Wow, they're doing better than me. Or pride can set in, hey, I'm doing better than them. You know, our our whole identity, how we see ourselves can get warped when we start comparing ourselves with one another. Because we tend to just compare ourselves against other people's successes. You know, we, we tend to be very good at hiding our struggles. You know, the Facebook generation, we, we just put our showreel up. Well, they're obviously more successful than I am. They're happier. They're obviously more spiritual. And so we get this skewed view of ourselves, and, and we end up going back to disqualifying ourselves. Well, obviously, I can't be used by God. Look at them. It's dangerous. We need to instead measure up ourselves against who God has called us to be and equipped us to be and run into that. We need to resist the spirit of comparison that our culture just just loves to promote. Jesus says, what is it to you? Keep your eyes on me. Follow me. Follow the path that I have planned for you. And you know what Peter did? Peter did. As we read through Acts, we see him leading the disciples, establishing the church. On the day of Pentecost, one sermon from him, 3,000 people get saved as he walks about, even his shadow falling on people, heals them. Amazing, amazing turnaround. So as John wraps up this gospel... The challenge for every Christian is, will you keep Jesus at the very center of your life? Will you be confident in his calling? The fact that he who calls you is faithful. He will enable you. Will your love for Jesus be the thing that motivates and compels you? And will you learn to be content in your calling, resisting the temptation to look to the the left or the right in comparison? Because if we do, I believe we will be used just as much as Peter was, was used. Jesus says, greater things will you do as we allow him to equip us, enable us, And as we simply follow his call on our lives. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then I think John's challenge, encouragement really to you would be, look at the evidence of my testimony. I'm an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. The son of God the one who died for you on that cross, the one who rose again to give you new life, the one who has loved you with an everlasting love, the one who calls you to follow him. Don't leave here today without putting your trust in him. All this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.